Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Anya Foxen. Anya is an assistant professor of religious studies and women's and gender studies at California Polytechnic State University. She received her PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her research focuses on the intersection of South Asian yogic and tantric traditions and Western esotericism and metaphysical spiritualities. Her current writing examines the transnational evolution and popularization of yoga in the 19th and 20th centuries. She is also a yoga teacher and longtime practitioner. Speaking about your book, which is titled Inhaling Spirit, Harmonialism, Orientalism, and the Western Roots of Modern Yoga, I'm curious about kind of the, the motivations behind writing this book and what led you to write this particular book, especially given the fact that you also are, as your you know bio points out, a practitioner, you know, a longtime yoga teacher and practitioner. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly not um, motivated by a desire to kind of uproot the modern expression of yoga, right? Because you, you know, participate in it. So what was your, what was the fundamental kind of inspiration behind the book and what led you to, to write it? I mean, so I think the fundamental inspiration is sort of exactly what you just pointed out, right? I, I really started out as a practitioner. Um, my first foray into academia was actually in English literature. That's what I was going to mm. go and get a PhD in. Um, so I was already kind of, I was, I was doing academia, um, or at least intending to do academia, but yoga wasn't necessarily tied into that. It was just something that I, that I did for myself. Um, and at a certain point, it just, I, I think it was actually at my yoga teacher training, I had this kind of crisis where I was like, okay, like I have to figure this out. It doesn't make sense, right? As I was taking like Indian philosophy classes and reading the yoga sutras, and like, this has almost nothing to do with what happens when I go into a postural yoga class. Um, so like why, right? Cause it seems like it should. And yet like, I just couldn't figure it out. And this was, you know, circa 2000, I don't know, five, six, seven, something like that. So Elizabeth D. Michaelis's book was out but that was really sort of it. Um, I think the other one was Joseph Alter's uh, yoga in, in modern India but like it, it was only really kind of in its nascent stages, this scholarship. And I mean, me being an undergraduate student, I wasn't even connecting the dots that were there. So that was really kind of what set me on the whole thing. Um, And this book, which is my second book, I think is me just really earnestly coming back to and trying to answer those questions. Um, Because the deeper that I got into the Indian material, um, the more I did begin to see some continuities. And certainly after Mark Singleton's book came out, right, that sort of filled in a lot of those more modern dots. but there was still just so much about what I actually physically did when I went into the studio that didn't really make sense to me. And it didn't seem like people just sort of made it up, right? It had some kind of logic to it, um, but it just wasn't the logic that I was seeing in any of these pre-modern Indian sources. And so, you know, I kind of started in the 19th century and then ended up finding out that actually, I might need to teach myself like (laughs) Plato. Yeah, which I thought was, uh, we'll get into that, um, <clears throat> uh, this kind of the role of Hellenism and theurgy in kind of the early um, uh, formation of these, this spiritual idea that you kind of define or you, you 
I think someone else you said had coined it, this term harmonialism. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious about just that kind of that switch for you. You said you were studying English literature and then you kind of got more interested in the yoga material. Um, was this partly to do, you'd mentioned in the book at the end of the book that you were kind of inspired a little bit by David Gordon White's book on Kiss of the Yogini. So was that, was that sort of like a transformative moment for you where you were like, ah, this is sort of like, you know, this interesting kind of yoga scholarship that mm. I'm very interested in sort of being in sort of the, the, um, the tradition of, or was it some other thing that kind of moved you in that direction or a combination think, perhaps? Yeah. I mean, I, a combination ultimately, right. I think originally it was really just that initial question. I mean, yeah. I was, the program that I was in at the time was really, really small. Um, my, the only person that really did anything with Indian traditions, uh, was Edwin Bryant. Um, yeah. who of course is a very prominent yoga scholar, right? It was just as he was working on his translation and the commentary on the yoga sutras. Um, so that was kind of something that, that I was very immersed in. Um, but that on the other hand is, is a very, you know, I don't want to say traditional, but, but, uh, it, it is a certain niche, right? Within yoga scholarship, but it's classical yoga. It really wasn't answering my questions about postural yoga. In fact, it was sort of raising more questions because I was beginning to see kind of this like giant rift um, between what was going on in Patanjali and what was going on in, you know, a postural yoga class. Um, David White's work, I really only discovered as I was already applying to grad school and I was trying to figure out right. where to go because um, there wasn't really sort of a whole lot of context for me to you know, base my, my research and my decisions on. Um, so that influence, I think, was more kind of in the course of me doing my PhD. Yeah. Um, because I did work with David at UCSB. Um, and so I think his particular style of scholarship, kind of really drawing these like really broad strokes connections was definitely something that was like super formative. Um, and he kept, yeah, you, can... you know, pushing me to do like micro history. I was like, <laughs> that's what I'm good at. <laughs> it's just not as interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned this other book and I do want to kind of just briefly mention it. You wrote a book on Pramahansa Yogananda um, which is, you know, it's interesting how little kind of scholarly work has been done on him. And, um, and, I, and you know, I'm excited to kind of dive into that book, um, which I haven't yet, but looking forward to. And I just did, wanted to mention that because you are going to be participating in this forthcoming panel that we're doing on Yogananda in sort of the spirit of 100 years of, mm -hmm. of um, I believe it's his 100 year anniversary of, or the 100 year anniversary of, of Autobiography of a Yogi. Is this year correct? It's, no. So Autobiography of a Yogi came out in, 1946. I think we might be a hundred years on from his arrival to the U.S. Approximately. Ah, right. That was technically right. 1920, but you know, I mean, the last two years, I think, are just sort of like a freebie. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, like it's, it's, it's almost, we're almost on the dot. Yeah, we're almost on the dot, you know, maybe a few years off, but whatevs. No, um, that's great. So I'll mention that again at the close of the episode. Um, so, you know, it's interesting you mentioning kind of the Yoga Sutras, because I um, and I'm, you know, many people did have this experience of, of really just finding the yoga sutras quite jar, jarring, and then and and maybe working with teachers who were trying to manipulate the text into something that fit, you know, the modern postural paradigm, mm -hmm. and it just not working, right? And, and I, you know, it's interesting the way you're talking about how it pushed you in kind of a revision of the history direction or understanding of history, um, because I think for others, it can also lead into, um, you know, and they're not kind of um, mutually exclusive, of course, but can lead one into the refinement also of the practice and, and seeing mm. that, ah, this text is, is 
clearly more about meditation or more about some sort of seated contemplative practice and can encourage us when we engage with the text or try to understand the text within its art, uh, you know, context to, to kind of push us toward meditation and realize that, you know, the physical practice was, if anything, just one, you know, quote unquote, limb of that larger body of sadhana. So mm -hmm. to what degree did it, you know, push you in that direction at the same time that it was kind of drawing you towards this revision of the history? I mean, I think hmm, I maybe made sort of like a loop, right? Um, and, and the loop was kind of realizing that, yeah, there is this sort of like the core of the thing is really a kind of very, not static, but, but yeah, seated, like contemplative, um, I mean, fine, let's get even, you know, into the later tantric material, but there's like sort of visionary practice, right? There's a lot of, it's very sort of internal, even though it's still embodied, right? Because you're still mm. literally in the body. Um, and so it definitely sort of deepened my understanding of, of all of that, all of my interest in kind of subtle bodies, um, which I'm getting kind of deeper into now. I, like that really, I think was, was grounded in um, beginning to explore these more internal dimensions. Um, on the other hand, I think that's where, like, you know, it was really after grad school that I sort of got more um, uh, back into my postural practice in a, in a more, you know, regular sense. And so I started kind of going and I started practicing. It really began being a regular part of my day again, um, which had kind of fallen off over, you know, the half a decade or so that I was in grad school. Um, and I think at that point, as I was looking for sort of a next project, that's when it really, I, I kind of, I closed the loop, right? And I was like, well, okay, but I still, like, there's still something that I'm doing here uh, that's not seated, right? That's not sort of like contemplative in that way, um, but is nevertheless contemplative and spiritual, right? And has all these other dimensions to it. It's just that there's something else going on. Um, yeah. And I think it was really kind of trying to explain like, well, what is this stuff with like breath and movement, right? Like what are people trying to do when they do that? Um, that still seems to have a whole lot of depth to it, um, but doesn't necessarily sort of easily map onto um, something that's, that's a little bit more kind of maybe aesthetically grounded, um, like what we see in the yoga sutras. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of get into a little bit of, of, of this history. So mm -hmm. you um, formulate the book around this concept of harmonialism. So let's just start with that concept. What is harmonialism and, uh, and what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. So I think as you, as you already mentioned, harmonialism is a term that I, I didn't coin exactly. Um, harmonial religions as a scholarly term is something that gets used by Sidney Alstrom as he's writing his you know, history of of American traditions. Um, but then really what kind of set me onto it was that Mark Singleton had used it, um, kind of referencing Alstrom, but really then also referencing the, the primary sources that he was relying on, uh, these, these manuals from the 19th century uh, that, that talk about sort of harmonic gymnastics. Um, and so originally that was sort of what I was grounded in. And then it ended up expanding itself out when I realized this is really maybe the term to use um, if we're looking to put some kind of descriptive term onto, onto this bunch of stuff uh, that you see in Western traditions. And so the way that I define it is still sort of, you know, it's one of those definitions that's like kind of very purposefully vague um, so that it can hopefully capture a lot of stuff. 
Um, and then at the same time, maybe not everything that we might want to call harmonial neatly checks all the boxes. Right? So it's meant to be sort of a tool um, rather than, you know, just like a label that we can slap onto everything and call it a day. Um, the, the boxes that I set up are basically that um, harmonial ways of thinking tend to assume that uh, there's a certain kind of monism to everything, right? And reality is one fundamentally, um, rather than having this idea that like we're here and we have to go somewhere else that's completely separate and different from here. Um, there might be, and there usually is some kind of elevated state um, whether that's that's of embodiment, whether that's of consciousness, whatever that is, right? That we that we need to get to. So reality, as we see it, is still sort of not all of it, um, but it's kind of already here, right? Rather than somewhere out there. Um, and then stacking on top of that, there tends to be this focus on, well, how does it all work, right? How does it all interconnect in here? Um, and so this is where these ideas of kind of sympathy, right? The, the relationship between parts um, and then the idea of harmony, um, how that relationship between parts kind of produces this, this whole um, comes in. And so this is what traditionally folks would have called like maybe correspondences or something like that. If you look at some of the, um, the material on like American spirituality and Western esotericism, metaphysical religions. Um, and then finally, I have this piece that sort of at least try because in theory, right, you could kind of apply a lot of that same stuff to, let's say, uh, Indian yoga traditions or tantric traditions, especially. Um, harmonial ways of thinking tend to be grounded, um, as is the kind of Western uh, musical theory based idea of harmony. Um, in this idea that that reality is somehow it operates according to these almost mathematical principles um, of kind of uh, uh, proportion, right? And again, a correspondence in a very specific way, resonance, if we're talking about frequency and stuff like that. Um, and so that really kind of takes us back to these, uh, these Hellenic, uh, particularly the, the kind of the Pythagorean roots of the thing. Um, and so that, I mean, it's not always kind of evoked explicitly, right? But it often is kind of floating there in the background. And I think that's the bit that really helps, um, you know, sort of distinguish it from, let's say, again, Indian tantric material or something like that. Mm. I mean, one of the most powerful and interesting things in, in the book and what I'm so glad you kind of talked about and, <clears throat> and featured so... <clears throat> I'm going to start again. <laughs> so one of the most powerful parts of the book for me was the centrality of Western esotericism in this in this historical narrative. And I appreciated how you pointed out that in kind of popular conversations, oftentimes we hear Western or European tradition associated with rationality, you know, with kind of scientific materialism, whereas, you know, the, the, the East, you know, quote unquote, or India is associated with this Orientalist idea of the mystical or the irrational. Um, and, um, and so that, that um, featuring of the role of Western esotericism seems particularly powerful because it pushes back against this idea of, of Europe and the West. So can you talk a little bit about that and how, um, you know, this, the, the, the concepts and the traditions of Western esotericism might have actually offered kind of fertile soil in which these other, you know, concepts that we then kind of mapped on to mm -hmm. previous Western material could take, you know, root. 
Yeah. I mean, I, and you know, scholars of Western esotericism have so many ways of talking about all this stuff. Uh, Wouter Honegraaff is somebody whose work I really like. Um, he frequently sort of points to the relationship between um, this sort of historically what we would call Western esoteric material um, and, and science, right? The, the sort of um, the way in which modern science becomes modern um, and scientific in the sort of sense that we're familiar with today. Um, so, I mean, that, that really, I think, is, is kind of core to the way that I think about this and, and to my argument about it um, is that, first of all, our rationalist scientific way of thinking about the world is, is A, very new, right, but B, grounded in these sort of fundamentally very spiritual ways of approaching reality. Um, and the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, and they're not even as much as we as we talk about, you know, this kind of conflict between whether it's science and religion or science and spirituality, right, or the rational and the irrational in the modern world, the way that we sort of split up body and mind. We talk about that a lot. Um, but if you talk to people, including scientists, really, right, most of them are not sort of actually nearly as committed to the idea that reality is as split as we sometimes say it is when you know really sort of like prod them on it and like get them to like start to you know sort out all the pieces um so so for me i think the way that i see kind of yoga coming in and really latching into this onto this stuff i think really has to do with the fact that this was a, a really core feature um of western spiritual philosophical scientific traditions and it never really went away. It kind of just like went under the surface, right? And because we're so committed to talking about how rational and scientific and modern we are, um, we kind of lost the language to talk about that other stuff. Um, and here come these, uh, these Asian traditions uh, that, that seem to give us language that describes stuff that we are already kind of familiar with in our own ways. Um, but because it has this sort of distance, right? All the, all the Orientalism, all the ways in which we're able to sort of project stuff onto, onto cultures that are not our own, it feels sort of safe to use that terminology and those concepts um, because we haven't sort of like debunked them in our heads as being something that, you know, that's pre-modern that we should have moved beyond. Um, that's, that's sort of fake essentially, right? I think we're, we dismiss, for instance, pre-modern European medicine um, and the way that that, that really influenced and, and formed um, our modern medical, medical practice in a way that we don't dismiss Ayurveda, for instance, right? Ayurveda gets to kind of stay whole um, in many ways, even though, of course, it is also now being practiced in, in modes that are completely different from what things would have looked like a thousand years ago. Um, and then this Western stuff, like sort of, it's, it's more diffuse, it's more fragmented, it's more under the surface. So because it's under the surface, it does, I think, serve as very fertile soil um, for other concepts to, to come in and kind of plant themselves and hybridize. Um, but at the same time, it's like we're never calling it out explicitly, right? And we're insisting that like somehow this is not part of, of our own history. Um, we need to get this stuff from somewhere else. Um, which I think is actually sort of what produces, right, a lot of this really problematic kind of appropriative borrowing um, that tends to strip the original context from non-Western uh, philosophical cultural material. Because right? what we're looking for are actually not Asian concepts. 
um, right? We're looking to put our finger on something that's 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 from a different place, um, and yet we do it using these these borrowed tools. Yeah. So one thing that I felt like was happening in your book that I didn't feel like was necessarily being communicated in a book like Yoga Body, which, you know, does have this sense of, of kind of resemblance, you know, there's a similar sort of like reclaiming of, a you know, a Western historical imprint that's happening, was that in your book, I felt this kind of positive, almost affirmative or reclaiming of a stream of Western esotericism, which, you know, as you described, kind of um, positions many of the spiritual ideas that we then map onto the East in the history of the West. So was this partly your intent to kind of, you know, affirm uh, this? Because, you know, there's almost like in the, after reading Yoga Body, one in their yoga practice and, and relationship with the material might feel destabilized. Whereas I feel mm -hmm. like reading yours, it's like, it's stabilizing and grounding in a different kind of way, mm -hmm. if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, I mean, that was that was absolutely the intention, right? And I mean, let's be totally clear, uh, to some extent, my book is is one big riff on yoga body. Uh, my book would not exist if it were not for yoga body. Um, yeah. So all of that work that that Singleton does, right, is, is so crucial and so instrumental to even setting the stage. I mean, we would be we would be nowhere right now. Um, but because that work was already there, um, to some extent that also, I mean, it opened up this space for me, right, to do what I did. Um, so I, I, I really want to sort of acknowledge that, right, that, that even though it is coming from a very intentional place for me as a practitioner, um, it's something that I was like kind of personally committed to and needing to do. Um, it also is a product of the fact that that my book came after Yoga Body, right, and, and, yeah. and not before. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the fact that this is my practice, right, and it's, I mean, it's scholarship, right, this is an academic project, but it's also very much a personal project for me, um, was, was really sort of a, a deep influence on what ended up happening in the book. Um, and I mean, I think to some extent, in the same way that that the you know that the political is always personal, the academic is always personal too. We're interested in the stuff that we're interested in for for reasons that are ultimately our own. Um, and so, I think it kind of it comes back the other way too, right? I think I think acknowledging. Um, why it is that we want to view this narrative a certain way, why we have the commitments to, uh, you know, maybe kind of trying to see this ancient tradition um, that we have is, is really important if we are going to exist in some sort of more, you know, equitable, more social justice oriented space, um, not, not only for sort of ourselves as practitioners, but for all the practitioners with whom we interact. Um, including ones that may be more grounded in, in those Indian traditions, right? Where we can actually sort of meet each other and, and sort of like figure out like, okay, like how, are, how is what we're doing similar and how is what we're doing different? Um, I think we can't really do that. And we can't, we can't sort of create this, this open space until we sort of like, like figure out our own stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and actually excavate uh, and turn the gaze back onto Western tradition in the same way that we've been looking at, at non-Western traditions, really sort of draw out that history. Mm. 
Yeah, I, it, it's it's kind of serendipitous that um, that we're talking about this book and also the role of Hellenism because completely, you know, with you know, without having known that you make that connection before I started reading the book, I had organized um, another interview with a friend of mine who's Greek and has has specialized mm -hmm. in in ancient Greek thought, and she very much is uh, is on this kind of um, train of trying to reclaim the Hellenic tradition in a way that um, um, reclaims kind of the esoteric core of it and pushes back against the sort of Western um, canonical philosophical narrative, which has essentially mm -hmm, purged mm -hmm. itself of the esoteric, right? And, oh, yeah. and tried to try to articulate itself in this purely kind of, like you're saying, modern rational way and the distinction between philosophy and theology and religion on the one hand, um, and and then kind of the, the, the purging also of even the practices that we find in some Greek um, academic schools, philosophical schools on mm -hmm. the other. So, um, so let's, so it's, it's very serendipitous that we're having these two interviews happening sort of almost simultaneously. Um, I'm interviewing her next week. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what are some of the key concepts in, 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 in the Hellenic tradition that you see as, as kind of being precursors to some of the, the harmonial ideas that we find in modern postural yoga? Mm. Well, I mean, I think first of all, this idea of, of harmony, right? Um, again, the kind of the parts in the whole, the way that that everything is interconnected um, and specifically, again, that mechanism of kind of like resonance. Right. So whenever we talk about vibes, whenever we talk about, you know, any of this kind of like, like um, you know, the way that 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 auras work or something like that, it's really drawing almost directly from these concepts. I mean, obviously, there's a couple thousand years worth of, of, of evolution um, in terms of how we think about these these ideas. But it's even though it's a diffuse trajectory, it is a fairly direct one. Um, and so I think what those ancient Hellenic sources um, kind of show us is, is a way that we are still thinking about the world implicitly, except that there it's very much explicit, right? Because this is literally their entire cosmology. Um, so even though it's sort of analogous in many ways to the, the Indian material, it's also sort of a little bit different. Um, the way that we think about chakras today, as you know, these sort of energy centers that we want to sort of open, right? And we maybe focus on on our throat chakra or our heart chakra or something like that, and we associate that with certain qualities and certain emotions and certain abilities. Um, there's not a whole lot of precedent for that in the in the Indian tantric material. I mean, some, right? If you're really looking for it, you can sort of like like, all right, well, that sort of looks like maybe, like, you know. But it, it's actually it's fairly difficult because that's just not the model um, of the subtle body there. Um, it's meant to be a little bit sort of more progressive, right? These are circles of deities that you sort of, you go up through. Um, whereas if we look at the way that the subtle body works in this Western harmonial model, um, it's actually what it's ultimately based on is this kind of the celestial bodies, right? It's, it's the solar system effectively. Um, and so because we have these sort of dual tracks developing at a certain point in Western harmonial history, where we do have the ascent model, right? Wanting to sort of go up through the cosmos and get to some other place. Um, but we also have that model that's kind of working inside the system that actually tends to fall more on, on the medical side. Um, the, the going up model, 
not that it falls away, um, but it tends to kind of like, like migrate more into the strictly speaking theological religious space. Um, it becomes a lot more Christian, whereas the medical stuff gets to be a little bit sort of more flexible, right? And even though it's medical and scientific, um, it's still it's still spiritual, right? It's still working on these assumptions of the subtle body. And so there really what we're looking to do is we're looking to harmonize the body. Um, and we're looking to maybe, you know, strengthen certain, um, certain capacities of our body, right? Maybe we are really looking to, uh, to approach the heart or something in a particularly therapeutic kind of way or the throat or something like that. Um, and so all of that is done through this sort of idea of, again, kind of resonance, right? Of finding the right frequency to connect to that part of yourself, of opening that part of yourself to this kind of cosmic universal influx of energy. Um, and you don't necessarily need to go from the top uh, or from the bottom up, right? Or from the top down or anything like that. You really can just focus on, on one feature of the body or another. Um, so all of that kind of stuff is very harmonial, right? But it only really sort of makes sense if you, if you I think, sort of trace it back, right, to um, where the concepts would have originally come from. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the chakras because that is sort of one of those areas where, yeah, when you when you get introduced to the tantric material, you realize this kind of radical disjunction, and then like suddenly yeah. there's this psychologizing and, as you're saying, harmonizing of the chakras, and you're like, well, where did that come from? It seems mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. a radical disjunction that is altogether you know, completely new. And while, of course, the expression of it is, you know, what what your your book is essentially doing as well, it seems to me is also saying, well, you know, it is new, but also it has this previous history that has mm -hmm. been kind of, all, you know, unknown. So it adds a le level of clarity um, and history to something that would otherwise seem almost just like a radical departure. Mm -hmm. Well, and the thing is, like, nothing comes out of nowhere, right? Sure, yeah. every new thing is by definition new, um, but no, no idea, no book, right? It's, it's just sort of something that appears out of a vacuum. Um, everything that we do is always this amalgamation of all the stuff that we've encountered and all the stuff that came before. Um, so it's like, it's literally impossible uh, that, that all this, you know, seemingly radically novel stuff, you know, when Jung starts talking about kind of Kundalini, the way that he does, for example, is, is sort of like an original invention. Like, like literally that is not how human minds work. Um, so once I realized that, I was like, okay, where are they getting it from? Um, and I think that was that was sort of the big turning point for me, essentially. Yeah. So let's talk about how theurgy plays into this. And am I? Mm. I've I've only ever read that word. Is that how you pronounce it, theurgy, or is it theurgy? <laughs> I I pronounce it theurgy, but I am also okay. not. You know, I'm not a classicist in the Western sense. I think it's theurgy. Let's go with that. So theurgy, which is something that I only a couple of years ago kind of encountered and thought, wow, this is such a um, um, a powerful kind of parallel to what you see happening. Um, you know, even you could you could say in the Indian tradition, because there is, of course, mm -hmm. ritual practices that are used to sort of, you know, cultivate divinity in the body, like you're mentioning the tantric mm -hmm. traditions, medieval tantric traditions. So, you know, something very similar happening here. So how does this concept and traditions of theurgy play into this history? Yeah, so that is, that's the other track, right, that I just mentioned. Um, and to be fair, I think that if we're looking at what's going on in kind of just like modern, you know, Western corporate yoga studios, that's not the track. 
um, the track is yeah. more that sort of the medical harmonialism, right? That kind of looks at the body as a system that's connected to the cosmos. Um, the theurgy track is, is, as you said, I think really like very strongly analogous actually to some of the, the especially the Indian tantric material, um, where essentially it's a model of ascent, right? You're, you're going, you're going up. Um, and as with the uh, the Indian material, you know, kind of if you go to some of David White's arguments about you know sort of uh, these these Vedic and Upanishadic modes of literal ascent, um, you find that there too. Uh, but as as it evolves, um, as theurgy develops, um, especially sort of during you know kind of like more the the Christian era of European history, um, it becomes I think it becomes something a little bit more abstract. Um, and to some extent, it is kind of plugging into, yeah, these ideas of, of divinizing the body, even though we wouldn't quite call it that, right? Because we don't want to like question the supremacy of God um, if we're, you know, yeah. an official in the, in the Catholic Church circa the year 1400. Um, so it really, it's, it's a tradition of, um, you know, kind of manipulating those, those correspondences um, that we have as, human beings to the cosmos around us um, and using those correspondences, drawing in those energies um, and, and using them to raise ourselves up in effect. Um, it, kinda, it depends on theurgy is, is actually, if you kind of get into the scholarship on it, it's like Tantra, right? It's this very tricky word to pin down because even in the ancient material, every place you see it is using it a little bit differently. Um, and so, I mean, like any of these concepts that we're throwing about now, right, harmonialism, it's not necessarily something that I think you could like slap down in a glossary um, and, and have it, you know, reflect every instance that it's ever been used. Um, but the way that, at least the way that I use it and the way that I think it's useful to use it if we're talking about, um, you know, the way that it influences kind of modern Western spirituality and, and, and this sort of hybrid yoga practice um, is that it allows us to talk um, on a slightly different cultural track about this, this idea of ascent and raising and kind of elevating um, consciousness, but also really sort of ourselves in a fairly holistic kind of way. Mm. So, you know, we're talking about these very kind of esoteric ideas and, but, you know, you end up connecting these ideas to a physical culture of American Delsartism. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I get it. It's one of those words that I really only ever read, right? Because yeah. there's not a lot of people practicing Delsart. Um, right. So yeah, Delsartism. So Delsartism, great. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, you touch on Ling Swedish gymnastics, the movement mm -hmm. cure, and American Delsartism. So, how do we get from there to here, right? How do we get from, and of course, we're skipping now, or I'm asking you rather to summarize basically four chapters right. of your book where you make this, where you, you know, slowly, gradually progress through this evolution. Um, but how do we get from that kind of Hellenic material that does feel quite, you know, you could very easily do a cross-cultural comparative okay. study of yeah. that with yeah. Indian philosophical and religious material and, and find a lot of similarities. Um, so how do we get then from that to this, you know, again, physical expression of, of, of physical harmonialism? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a, a substantial portion of how we get there is, is Orientalism, basically, right? Um, because 
I mean, to some extent, it, it's also kind of unfair to say that people aren't practicing kind of like harmonial physical culture. Um, absolutely, they are. Um, I mean, you can look at ecstatic dance. You can look. You can look at ballet and modern dance. Um, really, any dance practice in in the Western world is heavily influenced by this stuff. Um, but, I mean, and this is partially because of what my focus is in the book, right? Like we we also see it in modern postural yoga. And so, why why is it why is it yoga then at that point? Um, and the reason that it ends up being yoga, I think is, is sort of twofold. Um, and to some extent, this is uh, maybe, you know, Mark Singleton's argument versus then what I ended up being able to fill out. Um, some of it is this, um, this sort of masculine physical culture that ends up also really plugging into um, uh, the, the, the philosophy, right? And that kind of excavation of the Yoga Sutras, the, the reintroduction of the Yoga Sutras as a philosophical text um, into this material. So these are not only um, the, the guys that are kind of developing, you know, at the Mysore Palace or, or wherever else these, um, these specifically physical asana-based forms, um, but it's also guys like Vivekananda um, and Yogananda that are taking that physical stuff um, and they're sort of marrying it with um, you know this this framework of essentially I mean sort of yoga sutras right but really kind of neo-vedanta um, mm -hmm. that they are they are now bringing specifically into conversation with the western harmonial material because of who their audience is um, and so to some extent it's it's indian material right that is specifically sort of setting itself up in comparison with um, the Western stuff. And they make these comparisons when Vivekananda gives his talks on, on yoga, um, you know, after the Parliament of Religions as he's doing his US tour, uh, he, he actually says explicitly, you know, what I'm teaching you, it's not just that physical stuff, right? It's, it's not physical at all, in fact, and it's, it's, it's sort of psychological because if you wanted to learn the physical stuff, if you wanted to learn, you know, just how to sort of like breathe and, and, and you know, move your body, well, you've got, you know, you've got Christian science for that. You've got Dosart. And so he's claiming to be doing something different, but at the same time, as he's claiming it, he's drawing those connections, right? And he's sort of specifically setting up yoga as something that is a direct competitor um, to these harmonial traditions that his audience would have already been familiar with. On the other hand, um, you have the people that are in that audience, which are mostly women, right? Not, not exclusively, but mostly. Um, and so these are the women that are actually practicing um, at this point, a lot of this sort of Western harmonial, specifically physical stuff. Um, they're the ones that are doing the dulcet, right? They're the ones that are doing these, these styles of ling gymnastics um, that are sort of more, because they're lighter um, and they're more attuned to sort of aesthetics and grace, um, they end up being more harmonial, right? Because they're, they're paying attention to that sort of larger picture of attunement with a cosmos as, you know, the, the founding feature of aesthetics. Um, and so these women essentially make this really interesting leap where once they begin to see these comparisons being drawn, um, they become just enamored um, with the idea that there's all these sort of other ancient roots for their practice. Um, and so some of the earliest kind of connections that you see um, are not actually necessarily singling out um, 
Indian yoga traditions in particular um, as being, you know, kind of uh, similar to harmonialism. Um, they're using Indian yoga traditions as, as one point among many to say that, well, look, right? People all over the world throughout human history have been using their bodies in this way. Um, and, and so, you know, therefore what we're doing is both it's new, right? And it's modern and it's, and it's scientific because we can use all the scientific language to talk about it. But at the same time, it's ancient, right? And it's, it's, it's perennial wisdom and it has that sort of air of authority to it. Um, and so eventually these tracks kind of marry, right? And so what these women have been doing, this is literally the, the argument that, that Singleton sort of put out there that was just fascinating to me. What these women had been doing under different terminology essentially becomes yoga in the West. Um, but because it has this sort of continuity in the place where it's being practiced, it still retains a lot of that harmonial infrastructure, um, even though it does have also a significant infusion of, of non-harmonial, right, of, of Indian material. I just want to ask a very uh, basic question, which is, mm -hmm. what is Delsartism? Is it like mm -hmm. um, the what you see on uh, uh, kind of the earlier seasons of um, uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, where she's like in its nineteen sixties America, and they're in like these studios that look like a yoga studio, and they're like shaking their arms in sort of circles. Yes, is that Delsartism, or is scenes. it something like that? Um, that is a direct outgrowth of Delsartism. Um, I mean, that's, it's actually probably fairly close to at least some styles um, of what, have been, what would have been called American Delsartism. So where, you know, these, these teachers who really recognize like they are innovating um, and they start bringing in, you know, kind of heavier doses of the, the Ling gymnastics and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the way that they do it on Mrs. Maisel and granted, I don't know exactly how historically accurate what they're doing is. Uh, it's a little <laughs> bit, it's a little bit quicker, right? Like, yeah, but yeah it's a lot of these. The thing about Del Sartre, um, once it begins follow, uh, borrowing really heavily from Ling, Ling is based in a lot of these sort of like rotating, like super circular movements. Right. I mean, just because of the way that they sort of understand motion um, and Dulcart, uh, which started out actually as a system of, of aesthetics. Right. This wasn't a system of, of physical culture or exercise. Um, it was it was kind of principles of bodily movements um, that Francois Dulcart, the guy that, that you know, sort of originated the system, uh, meant to be used by actors and orators, by performers, essentially, to sort of communicate with the body rather than to sort of just develop the body. Um, that stuff begins, I think, a little bit more subtle, right? It's, it's a little bit, it's, it's kind of slower, um, but because it's working off of the same, you know, just sort of like framework and understanding of the cosmos, it's also really into like, everything's a circle in the West um, because everything ultimately actually is supposed to follow the, you know, the circular paths of the heavenly bodies. Um, and so therefore, when we're thinking about how to, how to make the human body move in the most harmonious possible way, the circle is kind of where we tend to land. I mean, also because it makes sense, right? Like our, our joints rotate. Like if, yeah. you, if you try the thing with your body, it, it feels, you know, good to do it. Um, and so it's, Delsartism, I think, could have looked a lot of different ways by the time that you even get to, you know, the 1890s um, in the U.S. And so once that label falls away, I think a lot of those, those physical ways of moving the body kind of stick, right? Um, I mean, I think that's, that's part of what we have to mean when we say you have women doing things 50 years later that, you know, are essentially the same things under different terms. 
Um, mm. But the things also kind of vary, right? It's it's all a big mess of just like people waving their arms around. Yeah, right. So um, I want to transition now to talk a little bit about you know where you land towards the end of the book, where you're kind of confronting issues of appropriation, and um, and it it was interesting because it sort of occurred to me as you were speaking that. Um, we see this harmonialism also reflected in some expressions of, of, um, of cultural appropriation in the sense that this desire to harmonize our tradition with another tradition, mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, you know, it kind of permits the, um, a shift of the way in which another history is understood to kind of coincide mm -hmm. or, or conform to, you know, perceptions that we have of our own. So do you see that happening that actually this, we can also see this harmonial gesture also responsible for some of the ways in which, you know, people silence certain things that would frustrate that harmonial picture? Mm. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, I think that there's a there's a history to this, right? That's kind of very complicated. Um, you can you can look at some of the first texts on yoga that show up in the West that are written by Indian yogis um, and see them doing kind of a very similar thing. Um, mm. And so and so I think it's very easy for a Western practitioner to point to you know Vivekananda or Yogananda or uh, or Shivananda or I mean any any of these guys um, and say like well look that is the concept. Um, and sort of ignore the fact that like these these are men of a particular generation and a particular background, educational background, that are talking to a particular audience, right? And so that causes them to sort of represent the concepts in a particular way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, because, because the, the picture is so muddled and everything is so entangled at this point, I think, I, I mean, I would have a hard time saying like, oh, like this person is, you know, maliciously trying to sort of like, like exert their like colonial harmonial interpretation onto, you know, an Indian yoga tradition or something like that. Because there's a good chance that they're getting that interpretation from, you know, an Indian teacher. Um, yeah. And so what do you do with that, right? Yeah. Um, but I think, I think to some extent, um, if we if we are concerned, uh, which I'm a historian, right, and I'm a huge nerd, so like I am concerned with this, and not every practitioner may be. If we're concerned with like kind of preserving some sense of what this stuff looked like before, um, even though what it looked like before may look different from what we have now, um, part of what's necessary to do that is to sort of like like untangle those pieces a little bit. Um, and in order to untangle them, again, we sort of, we have to be mindful of the history, right? And we have to be mindful of both histories and the complex ways that they, that they interact. Um, that said, it, it's really easy, unless you're like an academic and a huge nerd to not be mindful of that stuff. Um, and then it becomes really easy to kind of, yeah, impose your own assumptions, your own categories, your own ways of interpreting these concepts and these practices um, onto something where like they just really don't apply, right? The yeah. way that the way that this stuff works in Patanjali, um, in Patanjali's original context, it just, just doesn't match um, a lot of our modern understandings of how we sort of sort through, like even, even something so simple as the breath 
and what the breath is doing for us. Um, and so, you know, I, not that I don't think there's like appropriation and, and silencing and erasure happening. Of course there is. Yeah. Um, but I think that things are also kind of like a lot more complicated than that, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm glad you said that. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, the things that I come back to, and again, without, it's like, we have to get more nuanced about what we're talking about, because on the one hand, you know, a lot of the conversations around cultural appropriation, it seems like reify notions of hermetically sealed cultures that are stagnant and don't have any sort of, mm -hmm. you know, evolutionary trajectory or, or that weren't already mixed. Right. So, right. so, and that in of it, and that, that picture, right. Seems to also, you know, kind of recapitulate um, notions of white supremacy because the idea mm -hmm. stems from initially Western being apart, different, special, and mm -hmm. then we get, you know, cultures that are other than them, than us. So there's this weird sort of like almost um, uh, inversion that's happening yeah. when we're trying to, you know, argue for the, the, um, the the cultural authority of you know something like a true yoga tradition or a true mm -hmm. indian tradition mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when these things were just never as you're suggesting really uh, completely separate they were always mm -hmm. kind of integrated in some way mm -hmm. yeah i mean and i think that's exactly right it's it, like neither neither extreme um, is sort of productive right if what we're looking at is is kind of equity right and, and, and just like like productive conversations. Um, I think I say this in the book somewhere, but it's certainly, right, it's a problem when we kind of blindly appropriate and that that entitlement, yeah. right, to say like, oh, yes, this like, is mine, of course yeah. this, yeah, this is mine. Um, and I get to say what this concept is. And like, like, I know what this concept is, right? And of course, it matches all of my assumptions about the world. Right? <laughs> like, like you can very easily see how that would go hand in hand with just like kind of implicit white supremacy, right? Or explicit Absolutely, white supremacy yeah. even. Um, but yeah, as you said, like kind of the other move to say that like, no, like, you know, this is your stuff and this is my stuff. And like, like your stuff is different from my stuff. That has historically led to a whole lot of white supremacy also. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you can't sort of escape the, the, the problem, right? With power dynamics and, and colonialism and all these, all these really, really complex histories just by, you know, kind of saying like, okay, let's, let's, let's keep the things separate. Um, that just, it just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, because it's also kind of historically inaccurate to do that, um, and unprecedented because, because people, concepts, ideas, practices have always come together and interacted. Like, I think really the best thing that we can do is just try to be mindful, um, of how that has happened and, and how it continues to happen. Um, and how that happens in our own minds and bodies on a, on a kind of daily basis. Yeah. So I guess a follow-up question to that, which, you know, I, you, you allude to sort of an explanation for this kind of in the introduction and the conclusion, but I guess the follow-up question is then, well, why did you decide on a particularly kind of linear Western mm -hmm. story rather than what, you know, what you're saying would suggest, which is that there was always, there's always something kind of implicitly comparative or cross-cultural about yeah. the history. So I'm curious why then focus on a linear historical history that sort of is primarily European or Western, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which could then maybe in some people's perspective, again, recapitulate this right. isolationist narrative. 
Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, I mean, and the answer to it, sadly, is kind of mostly practical. Um, I mean, first of all, like, like that would make for a really messy book, right? If you were to really try to <laughs> yeah. do both. And the reason that it would do that, um, and the reason that I think it wouldn't have been as productive um, is because we haven't really done the work with the Western stuff. I mean, even my work is really only kind of the beginning um, of I think what, what that half of the field should look like. Um, there's scholarship on it, right? But it's all within this kind of like, like Western esoteric, um, and usually sort of pre-modern uh, context, or if it's modern, it tends to look at esoteric rather than exoteric um, instances of this, right? So there's obviously a lot of stuff on like sort of theosophy and Golden Dawn and Crowley and all that kind of stuff. Um, but like, that's not what we're dealing with here. Um, and so my goal really was to at least sort of like, like make an attempt at charting out the thing that we would compare Indian yoga traditions to. Right, because mm. you can't really productively compare two things until, until you, have you have a fairly yeah. solid sense of like at least like the broad outlines of each. Mm. Um, and so that's what that that sort of mostly Western linear story is is beginning to do in my mind um, is is laying out um, the framework for that comparison to be made. Um, mm. And somebody absolutely should make it right. I mean like somebody should write that book. I don't think I have the energy to do it at this point, you know, maybe, maybe in another couple of years or something, but um, I, there's so much there. Um, I mean, even just beginning to scratch the surface of this material convinced me that there's so, so, so much there. Um, and it would be a super fruitful comparison. I mean, there's just so many compelling things that you could analogize to one another. Um, but like you, like you can't do that, right? You only have so you, much time. You have some sense of, yeah. I, I think that's a fantastic answer to that question. And, and what I like about it particularly and what it suggests is, is this idea of uh, history and the uh, to be an ongoing conversation. And I think that sometimes, and perhaps this is a little bit what happened um, with Yoga Body, or perhaps we just have this, um, we have this sort of, not instinct, but prejudice to to land on a set or historical narrative that is going to be the mm -hmm. be all end all, you know, story of what happened, and you know, and never, you know, no, nothing will ever change when history really doesn't ever go mm -hmm. that way, right? Like we can look at histories that were written fifty years ago, and we can see the way in which contemporary histories were built on the work that was done previously, and so you know, to back to my kind of initial question about could this work suggest that to certain you know readers that this is the this is the fundamental narrative of right. of of western yoga is to misunderstand what historical conversations are more generally yeah or conversations more generally right i mean we we talk about history as though it's this sort of you know open and shut thing but nothing is like that i mean heck science isn't even like that Scientific yeah. theories get amended and revised all the time. Um, and so to, to come up with some kind of like conclusive theory of things is just contrary to the way that we as human beings have understood nature. Uh, it's, it's literally not how our minds work. Um, you know, I mean, history, history is a story, right? And if you think about how stories work, like even just the stories that we tell each other on a kind of daily basis, 
I, I can tell you what happened to me yesterday one way, or I can tell it to you another way. And you'll tell it to, you know, five other people, five other different ways. Um, and it's a matter of perspective and it's a matter of what details seem important for that particular context. And it's a matter of what you're trying to accomplish by telling that story. Um, mm. So to say that we have some kind of absolute understanding of, of literally anything is just kind of like, like we don't, that's just wrong. Yeah. It's just an adolescent, yeah, it's sort of like an adolescent sort of um, desire for absolutes perhaps. Yeah. That Which is, is nice, right? Like, gosh, <laughs> it's so nice to like have answers. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, it's just like not how the world works. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, this this sort of brings me, I guess, to perhaps our last question, which is, you know, and what one thing that you mentioned repeatedly, or not repeatedly, but a few times in the book, from what I recall, is that you're like, let me again repeat myself. I am not arguing that women, white women invented <laughs> yoga. Uh, which I was like, okay, so she, obviously either she's had some conversations where people were misunderstanding her point, or you know, she's just really concerned about um, misunderstanding. So on that point, and also just you know, possible misunderstandings, like what kind of misunderstandings of your work are you trying to avoid in making that kind of statement and perhaps other statements? Mm. I mean, and and yeah, to be fair, I don't think I've really encountered uh, these, these understandings, at least not sort of very explicitly or very vociferously. I think people actually mm. have been sort of very charitable and very careful readers, um, as far okay. as I'm aware, at least so far. Um, but, but I mean, to some extent, uh, exactly what, what you already mentioned in one of those previous questions, this idea that my work could be read, right, is essentially establishing this Western history that should somehow now in our minds overwrite um, the, the Indian history of, of yogic practice, right, that this is, you know, okay, fine, maybe, maybe it's not the most authentic yoga because it's not even yoga at all. Um, but that, yeah, it is somehow more authentic or more what we're doing, or like, this is what we should do to explain our practice, um, which is, again, just sort of not the point, right? Because that's, that's, not, that's not how practices work. Um, that's not how cultural dialogue works. It's not how history works. It's really not how anything works. Um, but it's easy, right? It's, it's easy to read the thing that way. Um, and to have a sort of super linear, like very sort of discrete version of things. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it, you, can, you can use that narrative to sort of affirm um, your sense of the fact that like, like, you know, your way of doing things in your culture is, is the way. Um, or you can also use it, you know, maybe from a more well-intentioned position to say like, well, no, right, and and it's dangerous to to foreground this other stuff, right? Because it leads to these, you know, white supremacist positions, and so therefore, like, why why even make that argument? Why even say that? Why even talk mm. about you know what white women in the nineteenth century were doing? Which I think is ultimately not sort of a very productive position either, right? Because until we until we excavate the the stuff that sometimes leads to problematic positions of appropriation, we're not going to stop those problematic positions. Um, and and so like like you know for whatever academic scholarly personal reasons, um, I did feel really compelled to make this argument. Um, but the entire entire that entire time, I had in the back of my mind like here are all the ways that it could be misread, um, and it was really really important to me that it not be misread. 
um, certainly not in some kind of like malicious, you know, white supremacist way, but also not in the way that in defending against those positions would sort of, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think those those statements probably helped people to be more sensitive as careful readers. And so, you know, it seemed necessary to include them for sure, um, mm -hmm. because I can think of, you know, in the case of Yoga Body, there was quite a bit of a backlash from, you know, people who have quote unquote traditional ideas of, of yoga history. And like, I remember having a conversation with a very popular Ashtanga yoga teacher who thinks that Mark Singleton needs to apologize, which I just thought was completely ridiculous. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this, 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 it, and it does come from kind of a conservative wing of, of yoga practitioners that we might even call fundamentalist who would see a gesture like this historical argument that you're making as being one that's an, another attempt to strip yoga of its Indian mm -hmm. heritage, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. and it's very clear that that's not what you're doing. And I think actually, you know, your statements to that point really help to, situ help to situate the reader in a way that allows them to read it in a more nuanced and careful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, you know, I kind of, I treat them as, as flags to pay closer attention, right? Even if they weren't necessarily inclined to, to do that thing, to draw that conclusion in the first place. Um, now maybe they'll at least be reading the material with the fact that there's different conclusions that could be drawn in mind, right? Like you said, it, it kind of, it encourages a more careful and a more nuanced um, kind of attention. Well, Anya, this has been such a fantastic conversation and it has been really interesting reading your very fascinating book, Inhaling Spirit, Harmonialism, Orientalism and the Western Roots of Modern Yoga. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners before we end our conversation today? Any books that are coming out, any um, talks or events that you're participating in? Um, well, I guess maybe I'll, I'll take this as, as an opportunity to plug uh, my and my good friend Krista Kuberi's uh, guidebook on yoga that we wrote together um, that came out slightly more recently than Inhaling Spirit. Um, Inhaling Spirit, it's, it's a it's a good book, I dare say. I love that book. It was really, really important to me. Um, it's an academic book. It's, it's maybe not the most approachable book. Um, but is this yoga, Concepts, Histories, and the Complexities of Modern Practice, uh, which, which Krista and I wrote together, both as kind of scholar practitioners. Um, I mean, it draws out actually that Indian historical material because it's, it's a guidebook on yoga, but it also makes a lot of the same arguments um, that, mm. that Inhaling Spirit makes. I mean, I, I incorporated my research there, obviously. Um, and so I think I, at this point, I kind of look at that as my like yoga manifesto, right? This is, this is um, as close as I'll get, I think, to a, a full understanding of yoga, both as I view it, you know, historically as a scholar and what it means to me. Um, so that's something that I always like to sort of pitch to people these days. And it's because it's a guidebook, it's a little more appropriate, uh, approachable. It's called Guidebook on Yoga. What is it's the It's called, title? Is This Yoga? Concepts, Histories, and the Complexities of Modern Practice. It's got sort of mm. a kaleidoscope lotus on the cover. Oh, excellent. Well, we'll have yeah. to do another uh, conversation where we talk about that one. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> So it's been really lovely chatting with you, um, Anya, and I just want to mention again that Anya will be participating in a forthcoming panel that we're doing on Yogananda in celebration of his 
nearly 100 years of <laughs> arriving in the United States, give or take a couple. So I have been speaking with Anya Foxen about her uh, recent book, although not most recent book, as we've just discovered, <laughs> Inhaling Spirit, Harmonialism, Orientalism, and the Western Roots of Modern Yoga. Anya, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.